Today, we talk to Dr. Richard Klinghoffer, CEO and CSO of Presage Biosciences. Presage's comparative in vivo oncology system administers microdoses of multiple drugs and or combinations simultaneously to distinct trackable positions within a solid tumor. The tumor is then resected and analyzed to understand the microenvironment response to each spatially defined region of exposure. We talked to Rich about his journey to Presage, the nuances between running a company and running experiments, and the field of drug development and how spatial instruments like the Geomix DSP will influence that endeavor. This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. Here at Nanostring, we believe that spatial genomics is at the forefront of discovery and translational biology research. We present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share our initiatives to engage and support them. So Rich, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Could you give us a brief introduction into your journey through research and then moving on to being the CSO and CEO of Presage Biosciences? Absolutely, and happy to be here. My journey through research started all the way back to when I was a young child. My first memory was when I was a kindergartner. And the teacher was trying to show us how we grow food. And so they brought in a bunch of seeds into the classroom and some pots with soil. And sure enough, after we planted the seeds, a few weeks later, we saw these plants emerge and I couldn't believe it. It's like, what is this magic? These seeds, which were these little white solid objects were turning into these green plants. And so I decided that I wanted to test this out uh, on my own. So before the teacher put away the seeds, I slipped one into my pocket and brought it home and dug a little hole in my garden. And sure enough, a few weeks later, a plant emerged. And I I was just astounded at how this change could occur. And from that point on, I was hooked. And so I was one of the fortunate ones who, from a very early stage in my life, knew what I wanted to do. You know, I went on, uh, obviously, always enjoyed my biology classes through high school. I was a biology major in college. And like most biology majors, the most well-trodden path was pre-med. And that's what I planned to do. I figured that this is the career path one takes when one is excited about biology. And stuck with that path through my junior year at a small liberal arts college called Bucknell University in Pennsylvania here in the States. And Bucknell had an interesting program between first and second semesters called the January Plan, which you know we had this extended period of time, I think it was about seven weeks, where we could take a short course in an area of interest. And the one that I decided to do was to spend some time in a local hospital with doctors so I could get a feel for what the life would be like as a physician. And it was an extremely important experience for me because I found that I really didn't like what I was experiencing. It wasn't for me. And it left me in a bit of dismay. Like, okay, well, now what? And so I had the great fortune of a professor in one of my biology courses, I think it was a molecular biology course, who advised me, well, you know, that's okay. Why don't you try research? Have you thought about an honors thesis? And I said, well, no, but yeah, that sounds like something I would be interested in. And we talked about a, a what a project would look like, and you know, he introduced me to the concept of oncogenes and drivers of cancer all the way back in the, in the early 90s. And I thought that's absolutely fascinating. And so we set up a project around early evaluation of how different drugs impact 
the expression of, of different oncogenes. I couldn't have been more thrilled. I became almost immediately a lab rat as an undergrad. It was difficult to get me out of the lab. And so that set me on the path to getting my PhD, which I did at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center, where I took what I learned as an undergrad and applied it to basically signal transduction, receptor tyrosine kinase signal transduction, and figuring out how that worked. And then what I wanted to do next was really understand whether the work we were performing in tissue culture setting was meaningful in the context of a physiologically relevant organism. And so I took the work that I was doing as a graduate student and applied it in my postdoc at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center out here in Seattle, where I made the same receptor tyrosine kinase mutants, but knocked them into animals and was really trying to ask fundamental questions. How are these different signaling paths that emanate downstream of receptors important? Do they contribute in the same ways? Do they contribute differently? Is signaling downstream of one receptor tyrosine kinase that distinct from another to make a difference? Or is everything just spatiotemporal expression of these receptors and ligands? And so that helped us better understand the importance of signal transduction. And again, in the context of a whole organism or a mouse. After that, I decided to take a position in biotech, my first one out here. And it came around the time that people were beginning to show that you could use other more scalable methods of genetic manipulation to study the effects of various genes and, and their protein products in cancer. And so that was RNAi or RNA interference. And so I applied that in my first position in biotech at a very small company, which led me to a larger company, a subsidiary of Merck called Rosetta Informatics, where it was a golden era for me in terms of research. We had the all the firepower of a big company, Merck, but a small biotech setting where we had Lots of different high throughput capabilities, functional genomics, you know, world-class genetics. This is my first experience with molecular profiling where we're running microarray analysis as easy as running Western blots. It was phenomenal. But one of the things that I noticed back then, which ultimately led me to helping start PreSage, was all the cool results that we were getting in the laboratory, which were really exciting in terms of Merck's early oncology pipeline. It was difficult to translate those results into clinical benefit. And so I started thinking about ways to address that. And I guess this gets into the story of presage. And so I happened to be sitting in on a seminar by a member of the Hutch. His name was uh, Jim Olson, a physician scientist at the Hutch. And Jim and I were acquaintances from my time as a postdoc at the Hutch. He was a fellow in a laboratory on the same floor. And what he was describing during the seminar were several technologies he was working on in his lab. One of them was this concept of a device that could introduce small amounts, microdoses, of different anti-cancer agents directly into intact tumors of patients. This was essentially the concept behind the company that I'm CEO of now, Presage Biosa. I thought this was fascinating. I think at the time, uh, Jim was thinking about this as a precision diagnostic, which you know I'll, I'll put aside for now, we could get into later. But what I saw it as is a way to address this issue that I was thinking about, and I actually was kicking myself for not thinking about it first, which is 
how do we evaluate drugs, early stage drugs, in a way that would be potentially completely non-toxic to the patient, but in the most biologically relevant context of human cancer, the actual tumor of that patient, while the tumor still resides in that patient with access to all the biology of that patient. So Jim and I struck up a conversation leading to a collaboration. At the time, I was looking at various other positions within Merck, but now on the East Coast, and was thinking about taking one of them. I was just about to do it when I got an email from Jim asking uh, for a call. And during that call, he said, you know, would you take a shot at helping me start presage? And I talked it over with various individuals, including my wife, and said yes. And so, you know, we started at presage as the first scientist, you know, right out of the corner of his lab, a big move from a big company to a startup. We built the technology over time. Within the first few years, I was happy that I was named the chief scientific officer and in a sense have still held on to that role to this day. The transition to CEO came about four, four and a half years ago, back in 2018. So about six or seven years into uh, the genesis of presage, you know, and it was it wasn't a planned thing for me. It was just a, a series of circumstances that led to essentially our board chair, world-renowned uh, industry titan Tachi Yamada, giving me a call and asking me what I thought about taking the role of CEO. And when someone like Tachi, you know, calls you and asks you to do something, you do it. And so, you know, I would say that. In terms of the transition from CSO to CEO, it's still ongoing. It's something that I learn, you know, what my blind spots are every day. It is a different experience and one that I, you know, even after all this time, I still feel like I'm growing into. Would you say that there's a big struggle between wearing your CSO hat versus the CEO hat? In some ways, it makes it more efficient. Because decision-making, at least in terms of what we need to do on the science side, comes from me, obviously with the input of the team here. In terms of other aspects of the business, sure. You know, I mean, there are things that I would love to explore on the science side that simply don't fit within a focused business model at Presage. I would say the one thing for scientists, CEOs to always keep in mind, and I'm sure most do, is that running a scientific operation within a business is indeed very, very different from an academic organization. It has to make business sense. Yeah, just having alignment with the overall goals of the company too, not just your yeah, interests. You have a lot of stakeholders that you have to answer to that you simply don't in other arenas and, and even as CSO. I mean, as CSO, you have a bit more leeway. And CEO, you have to be comfortable making some very difficult decisions with respect to lots of aspects of the business that uh, actually quite often you have to make them with incomplete data, right? As a scientist, you like to have a pretty sure answer. CEO, there's a lot of gray areas you have to play in. Something that occurred to me as you were mentioning the case of microdosing a specific tumor without exposing a patient to a lot more system-wide chemotherapy. What about the case of multiple tumors or cases of metastasis? I get that question a lot, right? And so we try to do everything, obviously with multiple stakeholders in mind. But one of them 
in a sense, is the patient, right? And so I always want to be cognizant of what the patient who at this point is really being altruistic with their participation in our trials. Our technology right now is being used as a translational oncology research tool to better understand the impact of drug exposure when it hits the tumor microenvironment. It's not at this point in time directing that patient's care. And so you're right. I mean, a patient obviously could come in with multiple lesions. Most of our patients at this time are coming in with single lesions and are scheduled to have surgical resection of those tumors as part of their care, okay? Which makes it much more amenable to our technology. So a day or so prior to their surgery, they come in, they get the multi-drug microdose injection, they go home, and then they come back for their just standard surgery, at which point in time we get our piece of the tumor that we could identify by a component of our technology, these beautiful little glowing spheres, which we call fluorescent tracking microspheres, which allow us to track the position of each site of drug exposure very precisely. And then their care after that is as it would be, and we get our tumor to analyze. But to directly address your question, what if the primary tumor doesn't respond to your drug of interest, right? What if you see that? What are the chances that the metastases will, and even if they don't, and even if they would, truly curing the patient or benefiting the patient if you know you know that at least one lesion is not responding at all to your drug. So I look at it that way. The other thing to remember is that everybody knows that solid tumors are typically extremely heterogeneous, right? One thing I didn't mention about our technology is that when we introduce the drugs, we introduce them in a column-like format down the depth of the tumor, the z-axis of the tumor. What that allows us to do, particularly with the spatial biology platforms, is we can evaluate almost limitless different microenvironments. Theoretically, limitless, but certainly now we can sample a wide swath of different microenvironments and see how they react or respond or not to drug. All these different microenvironments obviously have different cellular compositions, non-cellular compositions. And so we have to think of it that way. And what can we learn from this type of information that may be actually applicable to distant metastases? So it's not simply about understanding drug response in a homogeneous environment. There's lots we can learn from sampling down these injection columns. And now, again, with the the spatial biology platforms, digital spatial profiling and spatial molecular imaging, it's amazing what we can see by pairing our technology with those. I, I would say it's a perfect marriage of technologies. That kind of leads into the next question that I had is, how are the drugs decided upon for SIVO? Would they be a predefined set of cocktails or a combination of drugs? Or is it based on an initial analysis of the tumor beforehand? And it really depends on the study. So again, we're a company, it's a business, and most of our studies are performed in collaboration with the drug developer. Probably the most widely known relationship we have is with Takeda Oncology. And so, you know, we work with the various teams 
at Takeda on the asset that they want to evaluate and what combinations they're most interested in. Next week at Sitsi, we'll be presenting work from our first fully start to finish completed study that employed our technology, which we call SIVO. It's an acronym for comparative in vivo oncology. Comparative in this case means we can look at multiple drugs and drug combinations simultaneously in a tumor. We'll be presenting work on how we used it to define responses to a really interesting early stage pipeline asset uh, of Decatus. It's an inhibitor of a post-translational modification called sumoylation and how the tumor microenvironment responds to that across a number of patients with head and neck cancers and how it responds when this drug TAC981 is introduced with other agents, biologics like avolumab, so PD-1 inhibitor, pd one inhibitor, and cetuximab, a uh, EGF receptor antagonizing antibody. So in a sense, business influences what we want to analyze. That said, when we ran our first ever feasibility study, and this was one in patients with soft tissue sarcomas. We started with classic chemotherapies that have been used for decades in this context of soft tissue sarcoma. And what we did was we wanted to get a sense of how close the impact of the drugs when microdosed would match historic clinical response. And so we used agents like doxorubicin, which has been frontline therapy for soft tissue sarcoma now for decades because it, you know, it has a response rate that's reasonably high, like 35, 40% versus agents that at least a single agents like gemcitabine don't work, a very low response rate, but three to 5%. And indeed, what we saw was that when we did see responses, they tended to doxorubicin or other uh, newer agents like trabectidin, but really never to gemcitabine. And all that work was published in clinical cancer research years ago. The second half of that study all focused on immune oncology agents, mainly because we wanted to see whether they would work and what type of responses we would see. So we paired nivolumab. We looked at responses to nivolumab in sarcomas, which you know many people think of as immune deserts. They're not. They absolutely respond. And an agent that I've been interested in for a long time, I, I call it one of the first IO agents. It was a synthetic version of IL-2 called Aldous Lucan. And we looked at the combination of nivolumab and IL-2 and saw some really fascinating results. And this is actually the first study where we employed DSP. And you know what we were able to see with that combination of nivolumab and IL-2, which we presented last year at AACR, this year, earlier this year at AACR, was synergistic activation of T-cells, right, by virtue of elevation of the payload of the transcript of payload, grandsine B. But interestingly, we also saw synergistic elevation of immune feedback loops that may counteract that initial activating event. And these are the types of things that are highlighted when you are able to evaluate literally thousands now, whole transcriptome, of different biomarkers of response around each and every site of drug exposure. And it really, I believe, is going to be important in teasing out, one, these immune suppressive feedback loops, but two, help us think about rational combinations as the field of IO moves forward and begins to realize that, you know, now after thousands of trials, two drug combinations, checkpoint plus another drug, 
have minimal improvement, but you know, it could be three, four, five drug combinations similar to our CHOP regimens have been used for years that may need to be employed. And we have to figure out how to deliver these safely. That makes me recall one of my professors in Singapore that was working on AI-related drug combination, giving it a data set of responses based on a cocktail of drugs and then trying to extrapolate that out and then build basically a neural net to try and predict immune response to the drugs. You mentioning the DSP segues pretty well into my next question, which is how did you come to know about the Geomix DSP? So I first heard about Geomix. We had written a first manuscript about the sarcoma trial. And I presented it to a friend of mine out here who happened to be a board member of Nanostring. And he said, you know, it would be perfect <laughs> for your technology. It was an early version of DSP. But at the time, I think that the version that was available was a, you know, a multiplexed antibody protein panel. I think it was a, it was like a 40 plex. And I thought that was a good idea. The, the main reason was that we were seeing that one of the resistance mechanisms to doxorubicin was through the macrophage population. And we also had seen that in patients that showed resistance to doxorubicin, another agent, trebectidin, which many viewers are cytotoxic, but one of the mechanisms that why trabectidin works is that it specifically targets the macrophage population of this immune suppressive population, often called M2 polarized macrophages. And we wanted to see if we could pick some of this up in that panel, which included a number of immune biomarkers. So we tried it out and we liked it and we published it. And then I started looking more into digital spatial profile. I'm like, wow, you know, these guys have a panel where we can now look at north of 1800 transcripts. Why don't we do that? And so that's what we started employing in the second half of that study. And then ultimately in our studies under collaboration with Takeda. But, you know, if you think about it, it's really a perfect marriage of technologies. We know where we could input drug, right, because we can track it. We can do multiple drug exposures across limitless tumor microenvironments. And what DSP allows us to do is tease out what are the common signatures across tumors, what are the patient-specific signatures across tumors. And what spatial molecular imaging allows us to do is in intact tissue, which I should have said earlier, all of our samples are paraffin embeds, tease out in a spatially intact manner which components of the microenvironment are involved in those responses, both in terms of potential therapeutic response or anti-cancer response, but also, again, potential mechanisms of resistance. I mean, the detail we can see now in our samples, I mean, every tumor is just a goldmine of information. The first time I heard about the DSP, it was honestly just sci-fi. <laughs> Wait, you can do what? <laughs> It's wild that all of a sudden all these populations are open to you. I guess that kind of ties back to what you mentioned earlier on looking at different pathways. Or I was trying to think of something else. I think I was thinking more along the lines of drug cocktails. Even if you did a 50-50 combination of two drugs, you wouldn't necessarily see a 50-50 response. And sometimes you might not know which drug is responsible for how the tissue is responding. Would you say that? We can in the following way. So our device can deliver up to eight samples simultaneously. And so if we want to evaluate 
you know, which components of which drugs are contributing to the various responses. One way to do it, which is pretty good, never perfect, is to use one of the injections with drug A, one of the injections with drug B, and then the third with A plus B and evaluate how the combination performs versus the two single agents. We've published on this a number of times, starting with preclinical work years ago, a very talented scientist, pre-sage, who's now since moved on, but uh, Jayati Day published a paper where she applied this approach and a, a metric we used, which we call radial distance plots. On the x-axis, we're plotting responses around the epicenter of the injection site from near to far as a surrogate for drug concentration, right? So closer to the injection site, higher amount of drug, farther away, lower amount to ultimately have no drug. We're measuring response across a swath of drug distribution and drug concentrations. On the y-axis, it's whatever biomarker you want to look at. And what she showed was that if you simply plug in your values of radial distance into the classic Chow-Talele synergy algorithm, it works quite well. You can predict synergies between different drugs just based on the localized responses to those microdoses. And importantly, she showed that the localized responses that she could see that way panned out when she introduced the same drugs systemically. That's how we evaluate drug combinations. The next question I had is, how important is repeatability to you? Because I suppose when you do resect that tumor, that's all you have from that patient. Yes, I would say that obviously it's important, but it, you know, again, the context matters, right? So in terms of engineering our device and its performance, absolutely, 100% you want repeatability. Assay dependability, right? When we run a biomarker in our histology lab or even with now DSP, we want it to be reproducible. I think in terms of tumor to tumor responsiveness, meaning between patients or even responses across different microenvironments, obviously there's going to be a huge influence on you know, the reproducibility just based on biological variability. And so that's the type of thing we have to tease out. In certain contexts, reproducibility is always obviously really important and testable. In other contexts, it's more difficult and frankly, unexpected. But I think as you'll see when we present at CITSI or ultimately publish this paper, there are common signatures to drugs that you can see across patients that we could tease out and then other ones that are much more patient specific. So you get what you would consider reproducibility of response across patients, but also some distinctions as you would expect from any drug across diverse set of tumors. And lastly, how do you see the field of drug development changing in the coming years, especially with all the Insightu platforms coming out? Yeah, so I think that there's a number of ways it's going to change. I mean, one I mentioned earlier, as we begin to better understand the various complex responses that tumors have when exposed to immune oncology agents, PD-1 and many others. The field is going to begin to understand that we're going to have to address complexity <laughs> with complexity, right? Drug development, the reason you know, <laughs> among many that we're still at it is because 
it's hard, it's complex, and there's so much still unknown. But we're beginning to tease that out again with platforms such as the spatial biology platform. So what are we going to do in order to move in that direction? Well, one, learn, you know, learn more about the complexities, feedback loops to test. Right. And I think that, you know, what we can begin to do, and you know, obviously I'm biased, but you know, is start testing various combination hypotheses with a technology like SIBO and evaluation with spatial profiling. Or as you said, you know, there's a lot of in situ platforms coming out. One of the reasons that we put so much time into our technology is because. I think the advantage of the in situ platforms is that they're scalable. You can test lots of different drugs simultaneously in a way that we simply can't. But my question is how much of the original tumor state continues to be recapitulated outside the context of the patient? How much does ischemia play into this? How much does the loss of a vascular system play into responses that we see. I'm sure you can get data and people do from these studies, but I think time will tell how correlative they are to the actual human disease. So my first answer is that we're going to take advantage of better understanding of complexity. And my hope, and this is what I've been championing for a while, is try to do it in the most relevant systems possible. Secondly, I do think, as you alluded to earlier, that AI is going to play a big role. But AI is going to only be as good as the data we feed it. And again, this is where I stress the importance of biological relevance or biological recapitulation. The data should come from the most relevant samples possible. And I think that PreSage has a lot to offer that because again, unlike biopsies that you might take from biomarker studies in you know, phase one scale-ups or even phase two, where you have good pre and post-treatment biopsies, my question is this, if you don't see a response to drug in those post-treatment biopsies, so quote, a non-responder, how do you know that that patient is a true non-responder or whether given that heterogeneous nature of tumors and therefore drug distribution within those tumors, how do you know that those biopsies ever saw drug? Maybe you just took a region of tumor that didn't see drug. The advantage of what we're doing is we know where drug goes. And so you can profile around known regions of exposure, right? And ask the question, does the tumor respond or not? And if it's not responding in a way that's indicative of therapeutic benefit, you can ask what feedback loops are in play that allow that tumor to withstand that exposure to your drug or drug combination. So I think that what we're doing already with just a few trials, again, paired with the detail of information you can get out of the various spatial biology platforms would be an excellent start to feeding AI algorithms that better understand how tumor microenvironments are perturbed and can be treated with various more complex drug combinations. And then finally, I don't know if this is necessarily drug development, but I think it will certainly impact drug development is more advanced approaches to precision medicine. And so particularly in oncology, for years now, precision medicine has almost been synonymous with genomic variation. So if you have a genetic lesion, there are, there are several well-known ones like Philadelphia chromosome or drugs like Gleevec, BRAF, 
activating mutations for you know melanoma for BRAF inhibitors and such, EGF receptor amplifications for those and uh, EGF receptor antagonists. Even though those highlight many successes in precision medicine based on genomics, I think what many people don't realize, even in our industry, is that that's the minority of drugs out there. Most drugs do not have clear genetic biomarkers of response. And so what the field is going to need are what a number of us are calling functional precision medicine approaches to better understanding which patients respond to which drugs when they don't have a clear genetic biomarker. And actually, probably the biggest trial to date that evaluated the impact or the potential of genomic-based precision oncology. Sure, genetics can help, but it's an incomplete answer to precision medicine. So again, what the field is going to need are ways to ask the question, if you expose tumor to drug, Does it respond in a way that's indicative of patient benefit? And there's lots of ways to do this. And there's been some tremendous successes, particularly with blood cancers and showing that ex vivo, you can apply drugs to certain blood cancer type tumors and predict responses to patients. The question will be, how can we do this in solid tumors with greater complexity of the tumor microenvironment? And our technology is not there yet. There's others that are trying it with ex vivo platforms. You know, some tremendous work is being done and championed by folks like, you know, Tony Latai, Dana Farber, and, and Alana Welm. They've written some tremendous reviews on this subject. But I think the field is ultimately going to go towards functional precision oncology and employ that to their programs when some of these functional platforms become more advanced and, and proven. Yeah, I think when you were talking about the ex vivo solid tumor, it makes me think about how you're removing the tumor away from the microenvironment that it was in. So then you wouldn't have all those immune cells waiting to infiltrate or at that moment being blocked from infiltrating the tumor because of its hypoxic immunosuppressive state. But then perhaps you need that environment in order to test all your hypotheses properly. You know, people are addressing this with organoid cultures. I've looked at a number. I still think they're very interesting. They are subject to, I think, some of the issues that I brought up earlier. So manipulation, grown outside the context of the individual, grown in a static type culture. But they do retain elements of the immune system. They do respond to IO drugs. And I think it's only fair to see how these platforms play out. But in the meantime, since You know, there are multiple labs across the world working on those. I feel like presage and the community is better served by us continuing to explore our own platform, which is distinct from those. And, you know, again, CEO bias here, but it's hard to argue that we're not evaluating drugs in the most relevant context. The solid tumor, while the tumor still resides in the patient with minimal, it's a needle stick, perturbation. Yeah, Rich, it really sounds like the next few years might usher in the golden age of biology. And if anything, just get us that one step closer to trying to solve cancer. It is still a big mountain to climb, but it's good to see that steps are being taken by multiple parties. But thank you so much for coming onto the podcast.
Absolutely, Jonathan. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. And uh, you're right. Fortunately, if you go to big meetings like AACR, ASCO and others and allow yourself to take a step back, you see that there is just an enormous army involved in trying to solve the issue of cancer. And I see pre-sage is essentially one unit, one you know, a bunch of soldiers trying to contribute to that effort. So thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostream. If you would like to know more about Nanostream's product and panel offerings or speak to a member of our staff, please visit nanostream.com. You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. The links to which are in the description.